Most Christians know that the Bible presents Jesus as Israel's Messiah and the fulfillment of many of the prophecies and promises of the Old Testament. And yet, sometimes we don't know exactly how Jesus fulfilled these things, or why it matters for our understanding of him and his mission. In our interview today, I'm talking with Benjamin Glad about how the Gospel of Luke draws on the riches of the Old Testament to reveal truly amazing things about the identity of Jesus, Old Testament prophecy, and the real meaning of Christmas. Benjamin currently serves as professor of New Testament at Reformed Theological Seminary and is the author of From the Manger to the Throne, A Theology of Luke, which is part of Crossway's New Testament Theology series. Let's get started. Well, Ben, thank you so much for joining me today on the Crossway Podcast. Oh, it's so good to be here. Thanks for having me. So today we're going to talk a little bit about Christmas, about this coming of Jesus that we read about in the Gospels, and in particular, looking at a little bit of the Old Testament background that that sort of surrounds the retelling of the Christmas story throughout the Gospels, and in particular, in the book of Luke. Um, But before we, we get into that, I think a lot of Christians, all Christians to some extent, know that there is this Old Testament background to Jesus's birth. We get that, we have a sense of that, we talk about that in how we describe Christmas, in the songs that we sing about Christmas, and yet sometimes I think that we don't always know how all of that Old Testament, those prophecies and allusions, how they all actually connect to him. We know that they do, but we don't really know how. So I'm hoping we can dig into some of those today. I guess first big picture, how does the Gospel of Luke in particular, why is it significant to this idea of an Old Testament background to Jesus's birth? It's significant for a couple of reasons. Number one, we can trace how the Old Testament is used throughout the gospel, especially here in the infancy narratives, the first couple chapters. But what's even more compelling is we see on the back end, Mm. particularly in Luke 24, when Jesus is on the road to Emmaus with his two disciples, and he explains to them, rather he berates them, and then he explains Mm. how there aren't simply a couple passages that anticipate Jesus' ministry, his life, his birth, his life, his death, and resurrection, and exaltation. It's not simply a couple passages or a couple dozen passages. Rather, it's the entire thing, the entire Old Testament anticipates Christ in some way. Now, there are some texts that do so on the surface and do so very explicitly, and we see Luke mentioning these texts. Then there are also passages that are narratives or maybe even portions of wisdom literature like Proverbs or the Psalms or Kohelet or these texts that they also anticipate Jesus. And so the idea Mm. here is to read the Old Testament again in light of Christ and to determine the true meaning of the Old Testament itself. In other words, Jesus castigates the disciples because they're not reading the Old Testament rightly. And so Luke is showing how the Old Testament rightly applies and rightly anticipates Christ. And it does verbal prophecies that that are messianic prophecies, but it also does so with institutions. Jesus is, is a greater covenant. He is a greater law. He's a greater temple. He's a greater priest and sacrifice. And then we also see typological correspondences with persons. He's a greater David. He's a greater Adam, we see in Luke 3, mm. with the wilderness temptation. So it really is pulling together not just a couple Old Testament texts, but all of the Old Testament. It really is one of the clearest examples of this idea in the New Testament. Yeah, it's fascinating that in Luke, the end of Luke, as you say, we have this 
scene with Jesus with his disciples on the road to Emmaus, and he makes these statements about how all of the Old Testament was about him. And and then it seems like almost Luke is then illustrating that in the whole gospel. Yes, that he's that's exactly right. He's kind of actually unpacking Jesus's statement at the end of his gospel throughout. Yeah, he's going back. And so Luke, I believe Luke has arranged his material with Luke 24 in mind so that the reader can go back and say, let's see what Old Testament texts Hmm. have the disciples missed and yeah. you can go back and you can see that yeah. and so it's almost you, like by the time you would get to that statement of Jesus in Luke 24 the reader of Luke is nodding their head yeah you've shown me right. that I've seen that right. all along uh, but one before we jump into the birth narratives one phrase in Jesus's statement there in Luke 24 has always fascinated me and I wonder how that should apply to this conversation the text says that Jesus quote opened their minds to understand the scriptures it's a fascinating phrase how should we think about, what, what does that mean, and how does that apply to then how we would think about reading the Old Testament rightly in light of Jesus? That's a, that's a very good and very difficult question. I, at the end of it, I think the idea is God ultimately unlocks the, the meaning of the Old Testament. That it is divine, God-enabled gifting to his people that helps us read the Old Testament the way it should be read. And that sounds very exclusive. Hmm. Like, oh, well, only believers can... Or, or can, maybe subjective. Right, or maybe subjective, but that would be not... But that, it, 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 let's remove the word subjective and put correct, because I don't think that it's just that, that, that Jesus is being fast and loose with Scripture here. I think he's saying, no, this is the only way to read the Bible. Mm. This is the only way to read the Old Testament. And that comes ultimately by divine enablement. That really, at the end of the day, God and he alone is the one who opens our eyes to the Old Testament to see how Christ fits in light of mm. it. And this, is a divine, this is a divine thing. This is something that God graciously does for his people and to his people. Yeah. And related to that, then, I do, uh, throughout our conversation, want to keep coming back to the question of what Jesus' original hearers, the contemporary Jews in his day, would have expected about these verses and prophecies that he was citing. Uh, but before we get to that, all of this does connect to this broad idea of prophecy and a fulfillment of prophecy. And I think that's a term, that's an idea that uh, Christians today probably have a wide range of understandings of the idea of prophecy gets thrown around a lot, and as people have different perspectives on it. So when you think about the idea of biblical prophecy in the Old Testament, how would you define that? What should we think that is? What isn't it, especially when it comes to Jesus? Great question. There are different types of prophecy, and I think this is what's so confusing or can be confusing for believers. When I use the word prophecy, they're thinking in terms of an Old Testament prophet says it, explicitly, and then Jesus fulfills it. We have these sorts of things like in Micah 5. So that does exist. It, yes, yeah. it does exist. These are explicit verbal prophecies where we have this sort of thing in, in Micah 5 where the Messiah will be born in Bethlehem. And then what happens? Well, the Messiah is born in Bethlehem. So do you see there's a one-to-one -one connection there? That's just one type of prophecy. Now, as I mentioned before, there's another type of prophecy, and that's where we use the word this fancy word called typology. And typology is a very broad term. It can be a difficult idea to explain, but I think typology covers a range of things, that these are that there are particular events in the Old Testament. There are prominent 
individuals in the Old Testament, and then there are institutions in the Old Testament that also prophetically anticipate Jesus. And this is, and this is something where uh, people say, well, you know, um, it's, it's, typology is very subjective, and how do you know if something's a type or not? The, the New Testament authors have given us loads of information mm. in how they see Jesus fulfilling these sorts of things. For example, they put their finger on Jesus is the greatest sacrifice. That is an institution. And so here we have direct connections between sacrifices in the Old Testament and Jesus' sacrificial death on the cross. That is a typological connection. Many, many uh, New Testament authors make that connection. He is also the true temple. So the Old Testament temple, the Old Testament tabernacle, prophetically anticipates Jesus as the true temple and his people as the true temple as well. Why do you use that word anticipates versus, I think we often think of prophecy as predicting. What's the difference there? I like the word anticipate because I think I think it's, it's, it's less offensive. Mm. I think it, I can use it in a number of ways. I can say how, for example, Elijah's life, there are aspects of Elijah's life and, pra- and perhaps even all of Elijah's life's life uh, prophetically anticipate that Elijah is a type of Christ. Mm. Elisha is a type of Christ. David is obviously a type of Christ in Abraham, in Noah, in Adam, that these are types of Christ, that what happens with these individuals will one day happen again with Christ. And so that's why I say, it, it sounds weird, but I think I'm right here, that Jesus is a better David than David ever was, mm. that Jesus is a better Abraham than Abraham was, that Abraham was a shadow, David was a shadow, Noah was a shadow, Adam yeah. was a shadow, that these figures, their lives, the events that they're connected to, what they did and what they didn't do, anticipate the perfected Christ. Yeah. And that word anticipate too, for me at least, it, it also helps to retain the significance and the meaning of those people, those ideas in their own day and own time. It's not as if David's whole life was only, uh, in a sense, pointing forward. He had his own role to play uh, in the story, even as he anticipated the, mm-hmm. the real David, the greater mm-hmm. David. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they, you know, David, the first half of David's life is amazing. The second half is terrible. Mm. <laughs> you know? But Jesus never had a Bathsheba moment. Mm. Jesus never had a census moment. Jesus never had these issues. Like, he has the best parts of David, but not only does he have the best parts of David, he also didn't do what David did. And yeah. so he is the best version of David, and he is this consummate king who now sits upon the throne and rules over the cosmos. David's life pointed to, points to that reality. Yeah. So that's, that's sort of what I mean here when I say that there are patterns in the Old Testament, individuals, events such as the Exodus, the second Exodus theme is so huge to Luke's, to, to Luke's gospel. So there are events in the Old Testament, there are institutions in the Old Testament, and there are persons and individuals in all of those things. All of those things anticipate Christ's work. Mm, mm. And so Luke Luke lets the reader go back. In other words, he wants the readers to go back to the Old Testament and start rereading it over and over again in light of Christ. Yeah, yeah. So when we jump into the first few chapters of Luke, we meet a number of characters. There's Ze- Zechariah, there's Simeon, there's Anna. And each of them has seems to have some idea of this coming Messiah who would save Israel. So I wonder if before we jump into those specific passages, could you summarize what the nation of Israel, what Jews in that day were thinking, were expecting when it came to this promised Messiah? Yeah, messianic expectations 
are so vast and so complex that scholars and commentators don't even want to even go there at some level. Mm. But we, but in order, so there wasn't ha- there wasn't a really clean single vision of what the Messiah was going to be. It's exceedingly diverse. But I think we can, I think we can pull or synthesize some of these views and say that by and large, at least primarily speaking, the expectation was that the, that a, that there would be a coming king and that this king would overthrow the bad guys mm. and he would force Israel's neighbors to bow the knee and that he would subdue them and that he would put down evil that that he would be a righteous judge and that Israel's enemies would be subdued and they would submit to God's reign and that in other words it's 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 a primary political figure. Mm. And so we can see strands of this sort of thing going on in all four Gospels of these types of expectations. Yeah. So when Jesus comes on the scene, they're expecting what? The Romans to fall and the Romans to submit. And that's not the kind of king that we get. Mm. Yeah. At least initially. At least initially. initially. Yeah. Well, let's jump in uh, to to Luke chapter 1. Why do you think it is that Luke starts his Gospel, his his recounting of Jesus' life and ministry with John the Baptist and Zechariah, why start there and not with Jesus? John is a preparatory figure. He's a figure that makes, that, that prepares Israel for the Lord's coming, for Christ's coming. And so not only does he prepare the way for Jesus and for the pouring of the Spirit, he's preparing the way for Jesus' birth. Mm. And so when, so Luke, he details not just the birth of John, or not just the birth of Jesus, but he details the birth of John too. So he really juxtaposes John's birth and Jesus' birth. And whereas John will be a prophet of the Most High, what is Jesus? Well, he's the son of the Most High. And so Jesus is a better John. Mm. As, as amazing as John is, in fact, the Gospels, the synoptics will say that he is, that Jesus himself says that he's the greatest of the prophets. That he's mm. the greatest of the Old Testament prophets, he is still merely a preparatory figure yeah. for the coming Jesus. Yeah, there's this amazing line that I'm sure many of us have wondered about. Uh, when the angel comes to Zechariah, he says that his son, John, will come, quote, in the spirit and power of Elijah. What is that? What is he getting at? What is he? What should we understand from that? Elijah's life was dominated by calling Israel to repentance. Israel was not in a good, was not in a good condition hmm. when Elijah and Elisha showed up on the scene. And so I think the same idea is at play here that when, and we can see this later on in the narrative by how John clothes himself, mm. he, he, he dresses like Elijah. He has Elijah's diet. I'm assuming it was locale as well. <laughs> and so he's preparing. So, he, so Israel, Israel is in a terrible state. And so that's why he has to offer a baptism for the forgiveness of sins because Israel is, is in a really a, a state of, of cursing and exile. Mm. And so he's got to prepare Israel because if Jesus just shows up without John, Jesus' glory and Jesus' righteousness will completely crush Israel. Mm. An unholy people cannot dwell with a holy God. So John, as the messenger figure from Malachi and from Isaiah 40, He's got to prepare Israel for the Lord's coming. He's got to prepare Israel for Jesus, because if he does not prepare them, Jesus, the Lord, will show up in judgment and, mm. just, and just wipe everybody out. Yeah, you mentioned Isaiah, and in Luke 3, we get this reference, this quotation from the book of Isaiah uh, related to John. Yeah, Again, briefly, what should we understand from 
what Isaiah is saying there and how it relates to John the Baptist. Yeah, this is the longest quotation of Isaiah 40 in the synoptics. And what's unique here in Luke 3 is in verse 6, and all people will see God's salvation. All flesh will see his salvation. And uh, the other synoptics do not include that line. And I think this is here talking about the nations, about the Gentiles Mm. coming in and being a part of God. But really, I think the thrust here is Isaiah 40, and that this preparatory figure is announcing the restoration of not just a few things, but the restoration of all things. And so really, Mm. this is a technique that all New Testament authors use, and that is they cite one text, or maybe they'll cite a couple texts, which Luke does all the time. He cites Isaiah all the time. But Luke is not just thinking about Isaiah 40, verses 3 through 5. He's thinking about Isaiah 40 through 66. About, in fact, he may even be thinking about all of Isaiah's, all of the book of Isaiah. And so really, when he quotes just Isaiah 43 through 5, he's thinking of the entire message of Isaiah. Mm. That is, God has come, and now is the time when he's going to pull his people out of spiritual slavery, pull his people out of Babylonian captivity, and bring them into the promised land of the new creation. Coming out of exile is more than simply being liberated. It's drawing out of and into. Israel's drawn out of slavery and into the new creation. Mm. And so that's why Luke's gospel spends so much time talking about the way or the second exodus. And Jesus himself goes, uh, he's even called the way in John's gospel because he is the way in which God's people are delivered and placed into the new creation. Yeah. You mentioned the reference to the Gentiles, a uh, subtle reference in that in mm-hmm. that spot. Um, in Luke 2, we read a story of Simeon. So he's a devout Jew who's apparently just hanging out in the temple. And when he sees Jesus, the Holy Spirit opens his eyes to his true identity and he he, he then offers up this short prayer to God in which he mentions the Gentiles. I wonder if you could explain what he's saying there, and, and generally speaking, you know, what was the understanding of the Messiah vis-a-vis the Gentiles at this time? Was that, an ex, was that part of his mission that everyone would have understood, or was that, it seems like as we progress in the story of Jesus, his comments about Gentiles, and then certainly after Jesus, that's controversial to a lot of the Jews in the day, that, that the Gentiles would be welcomed in, in some sense. Right, so we do have texts. Well, for example, uh, just to back up here, here in um, Simeon's praise in his in this hymn, it's in verse 32 at the end of the hymn. He says, "Jesus, he's talking here about the baby, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel." This is a, an allusion, partial quotation of Isaiah 42 and Isaiah 49, and this is about the Isaiahic servant figure who not only restores the remnant of Israel, but he also restores a remnant of Gentiles of the nations, and so he's bringing them, he's bringing both groups into the family of God. And so here, this is one text, and we can look at several texts in Isaiah and elsewhere, even in the Psalms and in the other prophets, where you do have nations joining Israel in in becoming part of the people of God. That is not a New Testament thing. That is very much an Old Testament. It goes all the way back to the Abrahamic covenant and ultimately back to Genesis 1 to 3. And so the fact that Gentiles become part of the people of God, that's not a new thing. In fact, here, they join the people through the servant. That's interesting. That's beginning to set the stage for Jesus. But what happens is that the expectation in Isaiah, especially in Isaiah, it appears that when the nations join Israel, they have to look like Israelites. Mm. 
in terms of their customs and yes, the rituals. Yes, they have to dress and, like Israelites. In fact, we even have texts like in Zechariah 14 about how they will celebrate the feast of tabernacles there. And in Isaiah 66, they're going to function as priests in the temple of God. Gentiles, this is amazing. But what Jesus, and we see this very sharply in Paul, what they say is this. If you want to participate in the people of God, you have to identify and trust in Jesus. Mm -hmm. You see, we really don't have Old Testament texts that say, hey, when the Gentiles join Israel, just trust in the Messiah. We don't have those texts. We have the texts that just speak of, you know, a remnant of Gentiles joining Israel and they become Israelites. I mean, they're still still Gentiles, but they do convert. Yeah. Here, what Jesus is saying... No, you just you just have to trust in Jesus. Jesus is the ultimate Israelite. He, he is the, the he's way the Israel. you get in. He's the way in which one enters the people of God. Yeah. You see, it's so focused. It's so focused on an on, on an individual, mm. and we really don't have that idea. That's not an idea that we get in the Old Testament. I think there are hints along the way. I think we could we could pursue those texts, but I think the general expectation is that Gentiles join the people of God by resembling the Israelites by doing what mm. they do. Now, yeah, that's that's really the cluster of texts that we get. So that's the mystery of that Gentile be, inclusion that Paul references. Yes, I believe it's, so. It's not like just in, that Gentiles are somehow brought in, but it's that they're brought in through Jesus. Through and, Jesus. Through faith. They identify with Jesus, who's true Israel, and therefore they are true Israel. And so we see this in Luke's gospel. For example, we get in chapter 7 with the centurion and the centurion's faith is so amazing that he tells Jesus, hey, look, just say the word and my servant will be healed. And what does Jesus say? Jesus says, you are amazing. I tell you, I have not found such great faith even in Israel. Hmm. Do you see? Here is a, here's a God-fearing Gentile. Who I mean, it's ha- sort of an oppressor of Israel in a certain Right, sense. in a certain way. I mean, apparently he has, he has uh, uh, built the synagogue. But the idea is that he is a, at the end of the day, he's a Gentile. Even though he has drawn close to Judaism, he would still be a second-class Israelite. Yeah. That's how they would treat him. Mm. But Jesus looks at this, quote-unquote, second-class citizen and says, you're amazing. You have great faith. And what is he, what happens what happens here in chapter 8 in the stilling of the storm, what do we get here when the disciples fail to realize who Jesus is? What, is, what does Jesus call them? He says uh, in verse 25, where is your faith? Mm. In Mark's gospel, it's you have little faith. And so here we have the centurion, great faith. Disciples, where is your faith? Mm. So do you see he's, yeah. this oddly, this Gentile, this God-fearing Gentile has more faith than the disciples do. Yeah, yeah. And, he, and, this, and the disciples have seen way more than what this centurion has huh. seen. Which seems to then emphasize, it's, uh, the, the faith is the, the, the key issue here, mm-hmm. not ethnicity. Not, not uh, ethnicity. What, yeah. At the end of the day, this is so, it sounds so Pauline, but it's in the Gospels. Yeah. At the end of the day, what separates the community of believers from the outsiders, it's faith in Christ. Yeah, and uh, it's very clear, it's in, clear in the gospel. Very clear. It's not just a Pauline thing. Uh, let, let's jump in uh, to Mary's song. This beautiful portion in Luke one, where Mary uh, offers up this prayer and song to God in light of the news from Gabriel. Uh, I want to look even a little bit before we get into that. What Gabriel says to Mary, and, and kind of walk through that. It's a passage that we're also familiar with, and yet I think we can sometimes read through it quickly and miss what's going on here. So Gabriel says to Mary, He, your son, will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. 
and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom, of his kingdom, there will be no end. So first, what would a Jewish hearer like Mary have understood about this phrase, the Son of the Most High? Yeah, so the Son of the Most High, that is a very uh, high title. I, I, my sense is that title is a divine title, very close mm. to a divine title. In fact, later on in verse 35, I think that title is unpacked even more. Here he's just called, so the Holy One will be born and he will be called the Son of God. And so there's a lot of debate. Like, does when it says the phrase Son of God, does that simply mean that Jesus is a king, just as David was the Son of God, like a Psalm 2 idea? We hear the Son of the Most High. In fact, as we see, it's really in Mark's Gospel, I think, where we really get this phrase unpacked in a great and profound way, that Son of God does not simply mean Jesus does what his Father does or what God does, that just as God rules, so Jesus rules. Yes, that's part of it. But Jesus is the Son of God ontologically, mm. that he is, he is divine. And that's why in Luke's Gospel, Luke loves to use the term kurios or Lord throughout his gospel. He's constantly, uh, Jesus, uh, I'm sorry, Luke labels Jesus kurios or Lord, and the disciples, they will use the term Lord, and they may not think in terms of, oh, he's Yahweh incarnate, that there are times when they, when they probably aren't thinking that, or when other people use the term Lord. For example, here in verse 42, in a loud voice, she exclaimed, Bust are you, talking about a Mary, among women, and blessed is the child you will bear, but why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? So here, mm. this is amazing, because Elizabeth calls uh, uh, Jesus Lord while he is in the, the womb of yeah. Mary. And so she may be just simply referring to Jesus as in a, you know, he's master, he's a great one, something like yeah. that. But the use of Lord here is very careful. I, I There may be a side of this that even evokes mm-hmm. Yahweh incarnate, that he is Lord, because yeah. Lord is the common is the most common way of designating Yahweh in the Old Testament. Yeah, yeah. And look at verse 45. Look, blessed is she who has believed that the Lord would fulfill his promises to her. That in verse 45 is clearly yeah. Yahweh. Yeah. So the previous verse, or previous two verses, the use of Lord there, I mean... It seems like he's trying to right. connect those He's trying two. to connect. That's, that's the yeah. idea, is that... Luke is connecting Jesus as Lord in the womb and then the Lord in the Old Testament fulfilling his promises. So he's bringing them, he's starting to bring the two together. Yeah. And we're already in chapter, we're just in chapter yeah, one. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, this is fascinating. It must have been so, in some ways, shocking. And I mean, just Mary's response in light of this, these kinds of statements is all the more amazing when you know that she's perhaps thinking along these lines. Uh, what does it mean uh, that the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David? What would that have conjured in her mind? I think the promise, the, the Davidic promise in Second Samuel 7 and texts like that to say God, where God promised to David that he will have a descendant who will reign from the throne. And I mean, there's a whole, there's a whole network of, of, of Old Testament texts that really, that, that really resonate very well here. Mm. And this would be pretty standard stuff in the first century. Yeah, there's nothing. Nothing. I think what's I think what's unusual is pairing kurios with a Davidic servant. Because mm. the Davidic think, servant was not necessarily thought of as being divine. No, I think there are Old Testament hints. There are some passages such as Daniel seven 
and even in Micah 5, where it says, and his comings forth are from long ago, that there is something hmm. enigmatic. There are a couple texts, or a Psalm 110, this is amazing, Jesus even quotes Psalm 110, and David said, um, you know, to my Lord, apparently yeah. there's, who is my Lord there? Hmm. And Jesus cites that text as a proof of his preexistence. In fact, he, he even says, he, this is in the midst of a polemic, and he's talking here to these religious teachers, and they say, and he goes, oh, you guys think, you guys think the Messiah is just the descendant of David. And he goes, but then he goes on the site one time. David Psalm, said, David, my Lord. David said, my Lord. And so Jesus is saying, oh, but the Messiah is not simply a descendant of David. The Messiah has actually preceded David, yeah. and he has existed before David existed. And, and, yet, he's, just, and yet he's also a descendant, which is... Which, which is, is he's also, yeah, in his humanity, he's yeah. a descendant. I want to get into that then, because um, talk about the genealogies uh, that we see in uh, chapter 3. So first question, unlike the Gospel of Matthew, who, who opens with this genealogy of Jesus, Luke waits until chapter 3, until after he's told the story about John the Baptist until after uh, Gabriel comes to Mary and, and she uh, responds to that. Why do you think it is that the genealogy comes at this point? It's actually paired with the introduction of Jesus in his adult ministry, public ministry at age 30. Well, why does he wait this long? Yeah, I think, I think the answer is where does he do it? Well, he does it in between. He, he puts the genealogy in between Jesus' baptism and the wilderness temptation. And what's so fascinating is we get right before the temptation, Jesus, or Luke says that Jesus is the son of Seth and the son of Adam and the son of God. And in other words, when we read the wilderness temptation, we need to think about how Jesus is Adam. He's a greater Adam. This is the clearest text in the Gospels that links Adam with Jesus. Now we get that connection in the in in Paul, especially like in Romans five and yeah. 1 Corinthians fifteen, but here in the Gospels, this connection is clearly made in Luke three, warranting the idea that Jesus is not simply Israel; he's Adam, mm. because he because Adam and Israel are very connected in the Old Testament. And so now here we have in Luke four, when Jesus goes into the wilderness, he does so as Adam, but he also does so as Israel. That's why he quotes Deuteronomy three times. So I think we need to, so Luke is drawing both Adam and Israel together and Christ, and he's aligning them. So is that the whole purpose of the genealogy? It's just to it's not the whole the connection It's one of them. Adam. It's one of them. Another very compelling connection is in 36 when he mentions Noah, then 37, Enoch, and then he mentions Seth. That's Genesis 1 through 11. So he's, he, whereas Matthew goes to Abraham you know, you can almost see Luca's. Thanks, Matthew, but I'm actually going to go beyond. I'm going to go I'm all the up way. You on I'm going to up you, but John even then ups Luke, and John goes all the way to <laughs> before the foundation. Before, yeah, that's right. Huh. Jesus as Creator. So, so yeah, how would you summarize the different maybe point that Matthew versus Luke are making with their genealogies? I think in I, that's a great question. So, I think in Matthew's genealogy, the there are two points. Jesus is a descendant of Abraham. He is not simply Israel and Israelite, he is the Israelite. Mm. He is the Abrahamic son. And then on the other hand, and this is stronger, he is the Davidic king. And that's very glaring in Matthew. But in Luke, by mentioning Noah, Enoch, Shem, Seth, and Adam, he's going 
pre right he's going pre abraham does that fit with the emphasis on gentiles then a it little bit more it certainly fits mm. because we all go back right all of yeah. humanity goes back to genesis 1 through 11 it also very fits very well with creation jesus is not simply saving individuals from their sin he is delivering the cosmos from the stain of sin it's a cosmic salvation that Jesus brings about. Mm. And that's why Luke is so concerned with the first several chapters of Genesis, because it's everything, right? Yeah, yeah. Maybe as a final question, as we gather together, and we, we read the Christmas story so often, and obviously the first few chapters of Luke are one of the best places to encounter uh, Jesus' birth. What would be a couple Old Testament passages that you would recommend that we maybe read first uh, as a way to prepare ourselves to then encounter uh, Luke's presentation of Jesus's birth. Uh, Genesis 1 and 2 is going to be my number one because in Genesis 1 to 2 we see God's design for humanity, how God created Adam and Eve to bear his image and to rule over the serpent and to rule over creation and to bring his glory to the ends of the earth. It's an amazing thing. Mm. And so Luke is trying to connect Jesus with Genesis 1 the 2, that Adam and Eve, prophet, priest, and king. Jesus, prophet, priest, and king. Hmm. Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of those expectations. That God's, think of it like this God's intention, God's design in Genesis 1 the 2, his purpose in creating that cosmos, that universe, it may look as though it was failing at times in Israel's history. It looked as though it would never come about. Who, who's going to rule over the serpent? Who's going to rule over Israel's enemies? Who's going to rule over sin and death? And what do we get? Here, even as an infant, even before he's born, we start to see the connections being made that Jesus will not only save people from their plight, he will also deliver this world the stain of sin and will transform it into the new creation with the result that heaven and earth would become one location that God would dwell with us. I know we're talking about Luke here, but this is why I love Matthew's gospel because Matthew says, he cites Isaiah here and he says, and he is Emmanuel, God with us. Mm. God sends his son to save people from sin and to restore creation so that Revelation 21 and 22 would be activated, mm. that heaven would come down and God would dwell with his creation. Isn't that amazing? Mm. Because there in Revelation 22, what do you have? You have the Lamb and you have God the Father, and they are sitting on the throne and they are dwelling with people. Mm. Right now, God is in heaven. We're on earth. That's a problem. Yeah. There's space between us. We're yeah. in different dimensions. But in Revelation 21 and 22, you have two dimensions collapsing into a single mm. place, a single location. And that's what Genesis 1 and 2 are about, that one day God will dwell with us. Yeah. Yeah. And in Jesus, we start to see that happening, yeah. you see, yeah. in a very real and true way. And so really, the first coming of Jesus begins the process. The second coming of Jesus finishes mm. what he has begun. So it'll be very political the second time around. Yeah, yeah, different feel to <laughs> it. Different feel to it. Yeah. Ben, thank you so much for walking us through these first few chapters of the Gospel of Luke. It's an amazing, it's amazing to see how much is packed into these stories, how much intentionality. You know, we all we all have a, we all know that's true, but to see it come out 
and then to see how all scripture hangs together as it does is really amen really thank you thank you so much man i appreciate your time that was benjamin glad on the old testament background to christmas for more be sure to check out his book with crossway from the manger to the throne a theology of luke pick up your copy of the print book for 30 percent off or get the ebook for 50% off directly from Crossway by visiting crossway.org plus. That's crossway.org plus. For more interviews like this, subscribe to the Crossway podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast player. If you enjoyed this episode, tell a friend and leave us a review. That really helps. Crossway is a not-for-profit Christian ministry that exists solely for the purpose of proclaiming the truth of God's word through publishing gospel-centered content. Visit us today at crossway.org.